Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Just another day in Baltimore, said the medical examiner, whose gray handlebar mustache dominated his gaunt face. Shaw and the rest of those damn politicians have let our city become a playground for fallen women. Every slattern south of the New York has flocked here to make a dirty dollar. He shot a sharp look at the scribbling male attendant. Don't put that in the notes. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Bill Lefergy, author of Into the Suffering City, a novel of Baltimore. It's 1909, and Baltimore is a seedy town filled with corrupt politicians and small-minded racists who still complain about the War of Northern Aggression, known to the rest of the country as the Civil War. They're doing their best to keep Blacks and immigrants at the least educated, least cared for state of being, and they're big fans of Jim Crow laws. For the most part, everyone is trying to survive however they can. And if they have to step on others to get out of the filth-filled streets, so be it. Into this mix comes a young female doctor who exhibits symptoms we now recognize as being on the autism scale. She's treated with disdain by fellow doctors and nearly everyone else except for a few family friends and a struggling private detective who suffers from his own devastating mental condition. Then a showgirl is murdered. An innocent man is charged. And these two might just be the only ones who can save them. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thanks so much for having me here. So you've enjoyed a long and illustrious career as a historian. So what inspired you now to write a murder mystery? Well, I have to say that retirement actually helped a great deal. Um, while I was working, I kept running across, uh, tidbits of, uh, real history that I thought, you know, that would really make for a good story. Uh, but that would mean I'd have to sit down and try and write it out and working full time and dealing with, uh, dealing with my family and so on. I just never really figured I could get around to doing it. So I retired, and this uh, this was my initial retirement project, and it uh, I'm pretty pleased with the way it turned out. Oh, it was it was just a wonderful mystery. How did you decide to set it in 1909, Baltimore? It's really a fascinating time, um, and you know when I started, I didn't sort of do a whole lot of research on historical mysteries. And I've since learned that uh, Victorian England, World War I and World War II are very, very popular uh, sort of backdrops for a lot of historical mysteries. Um, But I was drawn to 1909 because it's right in the middle of some very profound changes. Uh, Automobiles are replacing horses. Uh, Electricity is coming in and replacing Gaslight. Uh, it's also really sort of this um, 
mounting wave of people coming in from the countryside off the farm uh, to come into the city and uh, make some money working in a factory or doing whatever and just sort of exploring all the fun and excitement that could be had uh, that could be had in the city that you would never uh, be able to see uh, on the farm. So it really just seemed to be a perfect time um, without the distraction of something like a world war or um, something like that going on um, to try try and capture the um, the really sort of um, exciting spirit of change that was going on. Yeah, you describe uh, streets and buildings in the seafront of Baltimore. Baltimore is like a major character in your book. I read in one of your, in somewhere, or maybe on your website, that you lived there for about a decade. Why did that city get such a hold on you? It was the first place uh, where I, um, I lived after I graduated from college. And it was really the first place where I began my career. So it sort of um, imprinted itself on me. Uh, I began my uh, career as a historian and archivist, and I eventually got to be the Baltimore City archivist and just had daily access to this incredibly rich uh, documentary heritage about everything that went on in the city. Uh, everything from very mundane things like uh, street paving and street lighting to these very sort of major sort of social issues that the city faced from time to time. And as I mentioned, as I was sort of doing my daily work, I'd come across these tidbits and I'd think, you know, this would be really be good in a novel. This would really be, you know, because it's just, you know, you, you, you have to struggle to make something like this up. Um, so I just kept accumulating those sorts of things. And then eventually uh, I moved away from Baltimore and uh, started working in Washington, D.C. at the uh, U.S. National Archives and then later at the Library of Congress and enjoyed that work tremendously. Um, but Baltimore just had this kind of grip on my imagination um, from my earlier years there. And it just seemed like the perfect setting to, uh, to try and write uh, some sort of historical fiction with kind of a mystery twist. Mm. Uh, as I mentioned in my introduction to this podcast, um, your protagonist would be considered today to be on the autism scale. At the end of the novel, you present a brief analysis of the history of autism and like a, the good historian, you even, you even included sources so I, I read them, and I loved the quote you included by Dr. Stephen Shore, who said, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Um, this is actually based on some personal experience. Uh, I have a, an adult son uh, who is autistic, and um, he um, he isn't exactly like Sarah, one of my protagonists, but there are some, some real similarities. And one of the things that I noticed, particularly when he was younger, um, is that when you, when I would meet somebody and I would try to describe 
what was going on with them. Um, uh, inevitably, someone would say, oh, it's like that movie with Dustin Hoffman, right? You know, you know, he can do all these sort of numbers in his head. Um, because um, odd as it is to believe right now in the world we live in today, uh, back in the um, late 80s, early 90s, autism was really something that a lot of people didn't know much about. And uh, that movie, Rain Man, uh, sort of was the, uh, the initiation or the, the sort of beginning of broader public awareness of, um, of what the condition was like. Um, but th- one of the problems with that is that uh, a, a lot of autistic people tended to be lumped into a big category. You know, they, if only because I think most people have a lot of trouble really kind of conceptualizing what, what it's like for a person with autism. So I think it's human nature to kind of, you know, do some lumping and, and, and try and simplify something that's kind of complicated. But um, the, the trouble with that is that, uh, you know, every individual is different. I'm different. You're different. Uh, But the same is true for an autistic person. They aren't, um, they aren't all of a type, um, quite, quite different. Um, they're, they're quite different from each other. Uh, they have very distinct personalities like any other individual. Um, so as I was writing the book, I, um, I was very sensitive uh, to uh, trying to depict a person who could be seen as on the autism spectrum. And um, I, I, I tried to do it with a lot of um, um, sort of compassion and sympathy. Um, but as I finished it, I thought, you know, I tried really hard and I, I think I got this character right in a way that isn't going to upset most people. Um, but, you know, just to be extra sure, I, I decided to put that note in the back that really kinds of kind of explains a broader context, particularly the history of autism, which, uh, you know, it's, it's just astounding how recent it is that, um, that we have, even, even doctors have um, even a basic understanding of, of what, this, what this is all about. Yeah, we've come quite far. My, I, I remember my brother was dyslexic and the teachers told my parents that he was mentally retarded. Right. He graduated from the University of Chicago with a joint MBA, JD. So take that. <laughs> early educators. Um, you also delve into schizophrenia because it would have been on the cutting edge of medicine in 1909. And your protagonists, um, since they don't know what's wrong with her, some of the doctors are sort of banding about the word schizophrenia. But when she acknowledge, when she assures them that she's not, the doctors easily respond that one sign of being schizophrenic is not realizing that you are. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, schizophrenia is another uh, example of something that um, for many years was just misunderstood and um, sort of under a cloud. Um, And even experts really had a lot of trouble grappling with what it was and especially what to do with people who, um, who suffered from this. And 
um, I, as I was doing a bit of research for the book, I was fascinated to discover this sort of like nexus between schizophrenia and autism, which was, you know, this doctor in Switzerland, uh, a remarkable guy who uh, was really sort of the first one to, he invented the term schizophrenia. He's given credit with inventing the term autism. But he really sort of um, took the time to kind of understand um, people who, um, who were different, people in some cases who were suffering terribly, and um, sort of approached them in a very humane way, um, which was not the standard way of dealing with mentally ill people, uh, even well into the, um, well into the, the 20th century. Uh, just you look back and standard treatments and they're, they're just awful. Um, and of course they were terribly, terribly bad in 1909 as well. Uh, so I, I thought it would be fascinating to kind of explore uh, that connection between autism and schizophrenia and kind of have this expert. One of the characters in the book is, uh, is an expert uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, um, who is up on all the more recent sort of theories. And one of those theories is schizophrenia and some of the, the diagnostic criteria that they had for schizophrenia could be interpreted um, to apply to people with autism. Um, so it was, it was actually, I enjoyed that. Quite a bit. I mean, it's a very serious subject and and sad in a lot of ways. But still, um, being able to kind of explore how the two sort of are related and how they're related, and then have this, you know, this expert um, apply this faulty diagnosis. But you know, at the time, it would have been very convincing for uh, for one of my main characters. Mm-hmm. Your second protagonist, Jack, has what might now be diagnosed as PTSD. What can you tell us about him? Yeah. And um, I wanted um, my other character, I have two protagonists, uh, and the, the second protagonist um, is, um, I think it's fair to say, a, you know, a fairly decent kind of guy. But um, I wanted to sort of give him some complexity. And I was, as I was developing him, I'm thinking, well, what would, you know, he comes from a very humble background with not much education or anything. And I was thinking, well, what would somebody like this do? And I sort of imagined them, all right, they would probably go into the army. He likes horses, so he goes into the cavalry. And right around this time, there was all this... Um, U.S. military intervention in the Philippines. And um, so I, I have this character, or part of his backstory is um, his experience in the Philippines um, during this Muslim uprising in the southern Philippines. And there actually was a historical event um, um, that, uh, that he witnesses. And it was a it was a horrific event, and uh, it actually got a fair amount of press coverage at, at the time. It was pretty controversial, 
So I thought, yeah, well, suppose this guy was kind of a decent guy and um, he's, he sees this and how is he going to react? Um, and I'm thinking, well, you know, he's, you know, he's also a tough guy. You know, he isn't going to like be shaking in his boots and crying himself to sleep. He's going to try and internalize it and try and deal with it the way a man is supposed to deal with things. Um, but then as now, there are consequences for that, um, for some individuals, for a lot of individuals. Um, and of course, this is really hard because, you know, he's a tough guy. Uh, he's, he's not somebody given to a lot of introspection, but he's got all of these feelings and all this sort of repressed stuff that, um, manifests itself in some pretty unusual ways and he has to try and cope with it and it's really really hard for him and so he um he he suffers a lot and but i also wanted to make it clear that you can suffer this way um but still still maintain your humanity you you know he's still very much a guy with a moral center and um you know his struggles are I think in a way kind of make that even clearer, or at least that was my intent. Mm-hmm. You call it the state of Maryland as being particularly racist. Were they more so than other states? Well, there are, I wouldn't say that they were the worst. <laughs> they, uh, they are below, and we still are below the, the Mason Dixon line. Um, and, and Maryland, uh, in, in many ways still um, has some features of a, of a Southern state. Uh, it was known as a border state during the Civil War, which means uh, it was occupied by the Union. But if um, the Union troops were in here, it probably would have joined the Confederacy. There was slavery um, all over the place, including in the city of Baltimore. Um, and then after the Civil War, uh, Certainly, Maryland was right up there in terms of um, some of the awful things that were done, the laws and lynching and some of the other um, terrible, terrible uh, acts, tons of discrimination. Um, Maryland, I think, um, certainly for a state that, while it isn't in the Deep South, uh, Maryland did have a number of politicians who really uh, worked pretty hard um, to sort of enforce a color barrier uh, to sort of you know, separate the races. Um, and I mentioned that a little bit in the um, um, in my sort of author's note in the back. Um, and one of the key elements of that was this law, um, which I sort of knew about, but it was really interesting to research it. Um, it was called miscegenation which basically means if one person is white and the other person is black, you can't legally get married. And Maryland actually was um, the last or among the last states to sort of rub that out of their, um, their statutes uh, in the late 60s. And, but not only was, um, was it declared that you couldn't 
um, a black person couldn't marry a white person, the definition of a black person was pretty strict. Uh, if you had one great grandparent um, who was African American, you, as their descendant, uh, were also considered African American, no matter how you looked. You could look completely white, um, as as white as they come, but under the law, you would be considered uh, African American. Um, and Maryland actually. Uh, had, has a long history of laws like that going all the way back to the colonial days. So, again, I wouldn't say Maryland was the worst, but uh, for a, a, a state with a major urban center like Baltimore, um, which was one of the major cities in the country, it was a very prosperous place. Uh, there was a lot of money in Maryland. It, was, um, it had a big industrial base. So it wasn't like the rural south. Um, it was more like the North than the South in that way, but um, a, kind of a very disturbing history of, 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 uh, of racism. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Shame on all of us for allowing it to go on. And thank heaven right now is when we're starting to see some changes, some serious changes. Speaking about political figures, they're, um, they're all swaggering liars who are willing to do anything to hold on to power. And we're quick to blame others for their transgressions. Transgressions. Just wondering, did you base them on anyone in particular? <laughs> um, I have a disclaimer in the front of the book that says this is an act of fiction, or a work of fiction. Um, there were some characters at the time who sort of uh, inspired um, some of some of the people I uh, I describe in the book. I wouldn't say anybody is. Um, um, is um, an exact sort of uh, portrayal. Um, they're sort of composites, as they say. Um, there actually was um, a very major um, uh, machine politician in, in Baltimore at the time who um, um, sat in the lobby of, of the hotel that I mentioned in, in the book and um, conducted his business. Um, now, as far as I know, that person wasn't involved with some of the things this other character is involved with, but, um, uh, there's certainly Baltimore in it, its history of, um, of, uh, political shenanigans. There, there was plenty to draw on. Mm-hmm. You also point out politicians who use the fear of immigrants and black people to solidify their bases. And I'm wondering if you were trying to show that there's Nothing new under the sun. Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of developed as I was um, writing the book. And I, I, I was struck. Well, first of all, I knew that the racism of the time in 1909 was, was horrible. But when I started going back and reading the daily newspapers and uh, going through some of the, the publications uh, and the and, 
the stuff that was coming out of the uh, um, the, the state assembly um, at the time, I I was really shocked just how blatant and how um, virulent uh, the uh, the dislike uh, or the the hatred really I think you have to call it of um, of African Americans and and immigrants and part of it um, part of it was political because one political party sort of counted on um, African Americans and immigrants as part of their base and another party um, wanted very much like you hear today wanted to sort of suppress that vote um, so it's it's the same thing that um, that's going on today very much so although the difference I think is that um, today for the most part not always but for the most part there really is a lot of um, people are, are sensitized um, and and it's not considered cool for a politician to be too overtly racist um, in 1909 that was not the case um, the more you could sort of lay it on um, the more your your voters liked it and even if you counted um, some of these populations as your base, you didn't want to be too friendly with them because you were also counting on um, on whites as part of your base as well. So it it was um, it was a pretty nasty sort of political climate, um, and dare I say, even nastier than today's, which. Um, we're just saying. Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the newspapers of the day don't get a lot of admiration from you regarding the way they supported racist behavior, etc. Do you see any progress in the past century or so with newspapers? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's, you know, I mentioned sensitivity before, and I, I, I think you see that um, very much so. Um, these days. Um, I noticed that, for example, the New York Times uh, just a couple of days ago decided they were going to capitalize black in, um, in news stories. You know, it used to be a lowercase b, and now they're making it a, um, an uppercase b. So I think newspapers in particular um, and, and other sorts of um, sort of media outlets um, sort of feel an obligation to, um, to be aware of things that have gone on in the past and, and try to do a better job. Um, but as I mentioned before, in relation to politics, there just was nothing like that a um, hundred years ago in 1909. Um, you know, you were considered pretty radical if you came out and said... You know, black people are the equal of white people. Uh, you would really be out there um, in, in, in terms of um, making a statement like that. Um, and most people, uh, most white people, certainly were of the opinion that, uh, you know, racism is a fact of life. That's just the way things have always been. And 
that's the way things are always are going to be. And, um, you know, that's a good thing. Interestingly, your autistic character is colorblind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, um, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't pick up on social cues very well. And it's a hallmark of, of an autistic personality and sort of distinctions among people of class distinctions and educational distinctions and racial distinctions just aren't things that sort of mean as much. I mean, she doesn't really sort of read the signal of what that might mean. Um, and, you know, that kind of, um, you know, inability to kind of um, understand what's going on socially uh, has advantages and disadvantages. She is colorblind. She's not very judgmental about, um, about people, um, with some exceptions. But in, and certainly in terms of class or race, she's not judgmental about that at all. But on the other hand, she also really struggles socially because um, she can't really interact in a way that people regard as normal. Um, she's regarded as strange and odd and kind of mechanical um, and perhaps not even human, um, which um, is something that you sort of see running throughout a lot of um, even fairly recent sort of portrayals of autistic people. Um, and one of the struggles I had in, in, in writing the book and doing this character is I didn't want, I wanted her to come across as quirky, but I didn't want her to come across as a parody. Um, she's a real individual. I wanted her to be a real individual. And, um, but also somebody who, if you met them, um, you would really be struck by, you know, this is not a typical kind of person. This is somebody who's pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. Men don't come off that well in the novel. They're small-minded or they're slobs or they have serious problems. What's up with that? <laughs> um, well, uh, men during this era um, had a lot of freedom. I mean, they kind of ruled the roost. Um, women couldn't vote. Um, they were very much second-class citizens. Um, men sort of were 99% of the professions, lawyers, doctors, what, what have you, professors. Um, they ran businesses. They controlled the money. Um, so if they wanted to act like a slob or a pig, <laughs> they could get away with it. And again, sort of like racism, there really wasn't a whole lot of sensitivity about uh, um, treating women with dignity and respect, quite the opposite. I mean, there was a lot of misogyny um, simply because, again, these were, these were people who, who could get away with it. And uh, it was just regarded as, you know, that's just the way you behave. And that's, that's, that's fine. Mm -hmm. What did you uncover in your research about the Pinkerton Agency? They have a role in this mystery. Yes, the, the Pinkertons are a fascinating group. Uh, they were sort of the FBI before the FBI in a way. Um, 
they were the largest sort of law enforcement, not really law enforcement, but um, it's kind of quasi law enforcement organization in the country at this time. There were really a lot of uh, urban police departments were still sort of trying to scale up and still trying to, to, to deal with these incredibly growing populations. There really wasn't much in the way of a national kind of police force. And there was um, a belief among a lot of people that if you had a problem, you didn't really want to call the police. Um, they might not come. They might not uh, do a terribly good job. They might not do what you wanted them to. But if you called a place like the Pinkertons, you could get somebody or a couple of somebodies who um, would be very responsive to your needs, particularly if you had a lot of money. Um, and the Pinkertons in particular really developed a reputation for ruthlessness. Um, they were involved in the homestead strike in the 1890s in uh, Pittsburgh, um, where there's a bunch of uh, steel workers who went on strike. The steel owners, um, um, I think, um, Carnegie and people who worked with him, uh, brought in a whole bunch of Pickertons to, uh, to break the strike. And lots of people got killed. And the Pinkertons' reputation for sort of brutality and some you know, operating outside the law really kind of got, uh, got a boost from that. So I knew something about the Pinkertons, and um, I knew they had, a, um, they had a bureau in Baltimore. So I thought, yeah, this might be, this might be an interesting thing to kind, of, to kind of work into the story. Hmm. So, Bill, just between you and me, I won't tell anyone, do Jack and Sarah end up together? <laughs> well, <laughs> is there going to be another book? What do you work on? <laughs> yes, there is a sequel that I am um, working on madly. Um, and I will not reveal <laughs> what goes on uh, with the final outcome of their relationship it is but um they're um they're drawn to each other they they sort of complement each other in uh in a in a pretty interesting way um now in terms of you know what the future might hold obviously there's some barriers <laughs> if uh, uh if if something like that were to happen um but uh it's it's going to be interesting to explore uh not only in a sequel, but perhaps in books beyond that. Ah, so we can look forward to another one maybe next year? Yeah, my hope is to have, uh, to have it out by uh, early next year. I'm expecting a call. All right, we will. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Bill Lefergie, author of Into the Suffering City, a novel of Baltimore. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. 
Shuffle's an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.